If you're enjoying History Extra Long Reads, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thank you for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello and welcome to History Extra Long Reads, where we take a deep dive into the past, bringing you the very best of BBC History magazine, with fascinating articles from leading historical experts. In today's long read, we're bringing you a story of extravagant lies, homemade bombs and adrenaline-pumped commandos, as historian Joshua Levine charts the formative years of the SAS through the exploits of four extraordinary servicemen, Mick Gurman, Jock Lewis, Mike Sadler and John Tonkin. Fake news in fancy dress. How Mick Gurman became a member of the SAS before it even existed. In 1941, a young British trooper based in Palestine was sent on an unlikely mission Together with a fellow soldier named Smith, Mick Gurman was dispatched to Cairo with instructions to spread an elaborate yarn around restaurants, bars and tourist hotspots. For the mission, Gurman was issued with a uniform liberally sewn with parachute badges to back up his membership of the 1st Special Air Service, SAS, Battalion Parachute Unit, which was completing its training in Transjordan. It was an intriguing costume because the first SAS didn't exist. Both battalion and uniform were inventions of Lieutenant Colonel Dudley Clark. He had recently arrived in the region, having been summoned by his friend and supporter, Sir Archibald Wavell, British Commander-in-Chief for the Middle East. Clark's task was to deceive the enemy about British intentions, and the capture of an Italian officer had presented him with an opportunity. The officer's diary revealed an Axis belief that British parachute troops were present in the Middle East. In truth, 
There were none, but Clark spotted the chance to exploit an existing fear. He schemed a plot to convince enemy intelligence that 500 parachutists, all specialists in vehicle sabotage, had arrived in the region. This deception operation was codenamed a beam, and German's carefully staged performance was a key element. German and Smith, also in fake uniform, were to leak evidence of a crack parachute unit while seeming reluctant to do so. Clark's admonition made clear the importance of getting their mission spot on. Any carelessness or indiscretion on your part may well upset carefully arranged and important plans and have far-reaching consequences. In the event, Germin and Smith had a fine old time. They visited the pyramids, watched a football match and went to a cabaret, the cinema and a dance. They walked around Cairo Zoo and travelled north to Port Said. Wherever they went, they frequented cafes and restaurants where they attracted attention with their badges, talking with disarming conviction about a job they had never done and which didn't exist. Operation Abeam seems to have been a success. Certainly, rumours of a parachute unit began to spread. Curiously, the fake unit lent its name to the real SAS that was soon to be formed, thereby adding authenticity to Clark's deception. For Germin, the consequences were profound. Just months earlier, before joining up with the Staffordshire Yeomanry, he had been an apprentice engineer in Wolverhampton. Now his impressive performance resulted in another commission. He initially joined the Middle East Commando, and then in the autumn of 1942 became an officer in the genuine SAS. He journeyed far across the Sahara Desert, eventually reaching the Marath Line, a system of fortifications in Tunisia, and later took part in the assault on Sicily. None of the celebrated servicemen whose ranks he was joining realised that Germin had been a member of sorts long before they had. After the war, Mick Germin returned to Britain and worked in the steel industry. When he died in 1978, at the age of 58, it transpired that he had never told friends or family about his wartime deception work. To this day, the SAS archive holds an uncaptioned picture of two men sitting in a Cairo restaurant glancing knowingly towards the camera, wearing strange yet evocative uniforms. German and Smith. Before the SAS, it seems, came the SAS. Jock Lewis's return from the sidelines changed the course of the war in North Africa. In the early summer of 1941, Dudley Clark decided to boost his deception efforts by staging genuine parachute drops over Egyptian airfields. In the meantime, a determined, God-fearing young commando officer, Jock Lewis, was planning his own parachute drops in the same area. The two men's plans overlapped fortuitously. Lewis had arrived in the Middle East as a member of Lay Force, a composite commando force that had recently taken part in a series of failed raids on targets such as Crete and the Libyan port of Bardia, and which now found itself sidelined. Some frustrated members, such as the 70-year-old Sir Walter Titch Cowan, surely the army's most unlikely fighting commando, transferred elsewhere. Others returned to their original units or languished in the guards' depot. A few enterprising souls, like Jock Lewis, dreamed up new roles for themselves. Lewis's plan was to create a desert-based parachute unit capable of mounting surprise raids on enemy targets. 
Having assembled a small group, he was granted permission to carry out trial jumps, which could double as Clark's deception drops from a Vickers Valentia over Fuka airfield on Egypt's Mediterranean coast. In the event, however, the authorities put an abrupt end to Lewis's experiment. The jumps, they decided, were not demonstrating sufficient potential. Lewis's scheme seemed finished, yet the project was soon saved from the scrap heap by an unlikely scavenger. David Sterling was an aristocratic Scottish idler whom Lewis had grudgingly allowed to join his party. The giant sloth, as Sterling was known to his fellow commando officers, was unlike Lewis in almost all respects, but he possessed talents and advantages that Lewis lacked. He was notably immensely persuasive and hugely well-connected. Sterling had been injured while jumping from the Valentia, and as he lay in his Cairo hospital bed, he formulated a more detailed version of Lewis's plan. On his discharge with the help of his brothers, he drafted a memorandum intended to sell the idea to Sir Claude Auchinleck, newly appointed commander-in-chief in the Middle East. Sterling's plan involved parachuting small groups behind enemy lines to raid lines of communication aerodromes and other vulnerable sites. The men, sidelined commandos desperate to put their skills and initiative to productive use, would lie up unobserved in the desert before striking. The scheme would be economical in terms of manpower and supplies. Sterling had to win the support of Lewis, whose knowledge and technical ingenuity would be essential. Initially, Lewis refused. In his eyes, Sterling's idea was merely an extension of his own, and he feared placing it in the hands of a half-hearted socialite. But, as he recalled in a letter to his father, I trusted in God that night, and when David came again in the morning, I said yes, though I know not why, for I had made no decision in the night. Auchinleck also agreed to the plan, and the unit took shape. As it did, Lewis's respect for Sterling grew, praising his newfound enthusiasm, his energy, his confidence, and admitting that he appreciated the long-term value of my experiment more accurately than I. Sterling was happy to give credit for the formation of the unit to Lewis. Whoever founded it, the organization needed a name, and who more appropriate to provide it than Dudley Clark? He wanted the new organization to merge seamlessly with his elaborate fake, so as his most recent fiction had been K Detachment Special Air Service Brigade, the next unit formed would logically be L Detachment Special Air Service Brigade. Jock Lewis duly became L Detachment's training officer, turning his vision into a reality. His entirely improvised but immensely gruelling training program set about creating an organisation in his own image. When army ordnance experts decreed that a light and simple bomb could not be provided for SAS use, Lewis simply invented his own. His mixture of plastic explosive, thermite and engine oil, dubbed the Lewis Bomb, was pivotal in unlocking the unit's potential. He even designed the SAS parachute badge, inspired by a cod Egyptian motif above the reception desk at Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo. Jock Lewis was killed at the end of 1941 while returning from a raid on Nophilia airfield near Libya's Mediterranean coast. His loss was a great blow to the young organisation, as well as a huge personal loss for his co-founder, David Sterling. Hitting the target. 
To destroy Luftwaffe airfields, the SAS first had to find them. That's where Mike Sadler came into his own. The first raid, launched by L Detachment Operation Squatter, was a disaster. Dozens of men were parachuted into the desert in November 1941 in weather conditions so stormy and treacherous that no targets were reached and fewer than half the men who jumped escaped death or capture. In the aftermath, David Sterling and Jock Lewis agreed that for the time being at least, the SAS would not parachute onto targets. Instead, the long-range desert group, LRDG, a motorized desert unit, would act as L Detachment's taxi service carrying them by truck to and from operations. One member of the LRDG, Mike Sadler, became invaluable to the SAS. On leaving school in England, Sadler had travelled to southern Africa, where he worked as a farm assistant. When war broke out, he became an anti-tank gunner, then after a chance meeting in a bar, joined the LRDG and trained as a navigator. I was so tickled, he says, by the idea of being able to find where you were by looking at the stars. Sadler used a theodolite and wireless receiver by night to mark his position and a sand compass by day to remain on a bearing. He found his relationship with the landscape constantly evolving. You were continually shoved off course by hills or rocks or boulders, he says. During the first half of 1942, Sadler took part in both LRDG and SAS operations. That summer, though, Sterling got hold of some tough American vehicles known to British soldiers as Willie's Bantams, the earliest jeeps. The SAS could now drive to and from raids, but this posed two problems. First, very few SAS members, many of whom had been raised in relative poverty during the Depression, knew how to drive. Second, the LRDG had provided not only transport but also navigational expertise. How would the SAS find its way? The first problem was solved by hastily arranging driving lessons, the second by engaging Sadler as L Detachment's senior navigator, though he was never actually asked if he wanted to join the SAS. All I knew, he says, was that David Sterling decided he wanted me and somehow he got me. This was how the jeep, a relatively late addition to L Detachment's Desert Compendium, became the most instantly recognisable symbol of the wartime SAS. Sadler's defining moment as navigator, his finest hour, according to colleague Jim Armands, probably came in July 1942. On an ambitious mission, he guided numerous jeeps and their adrenaline-pumped crews across the desert to Sidi Hanesh airfield in northwestern Egypt, a key link in the supply chain for Axis forces in the region. "'Where's this bloody airfield then, Sadler?' asked Sterling after many hours of driving. I think it's about a mile ahead, answered Sadler, at which moment a brilliant array of landing lights switched on precisely where he was indicating. In the ensuing raid, dozens of Luftwaffe aircraft were destroyed by fire from 68 Vickers K-guns as the SAS party's jeeps moved steadily across the airfield in tight formation. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The SAS was gaining a fearsome reputation, as Sterling had envisaged the psychological impact of a shapeless threat destroying aircraft and breaking lines of communication had been profound. Now, as Rommel's forces fled west, in late 1942, following their defeat at El Alamein, Sterling spotted an opportunity to harry them. Not only would this assist the Allied effort, but it would advertise the SAS as a force deserving of a major role in any coming theatre of war, particularly if it could become the first element of Eighth Army to meet up with the Anglo-American force, which would be moving east after its invasion of French-held territories in Morocco and Algeria. But then disaster struck. In January 1943, Sterling was captured by the Germans. Sadler narrowly escaped the same fate, slogging through the desert on foot before reaching safety at a French Foreign Legion outpost. Sadler and two SAS colleagues were handed on to an American unit at Gafsa, becoming almost certainly the first members of 8th Army to make contact with the Americans. This deeply symbolic encounter was witnessed by journalist A.J. Liebling, who filed a piece for the New Yorker magazine. Sadler had inadvertently fulfilled Sterling's desire to advertise the SAS, even if his boss wasn't on hand to see it happen. Mike Sadler is, at the time of writing, alive and well at the age of 103. The Warrior with Wanderlust From Sicily to Normandy to the heart of Germany, John Tonkin was on the front line of SAS operations across various theatres in Europe, marking a new phase in its development. By summer 1943, the SAS had destroyed more than 300 enemy aircraft in North Africa and had been made the first Special Air Service Regiment. Now its war moved to Sicily. With the unit was John Tonkin, who had first arrived in the Middle East as a Royal Northumberland Fusilier. Bored with constantly running up and down sandhills to stay fit, he volunteered for the commandos before joining the SAS in late 1942. Several months later, Tonkin became an officer in the Special Raiding Squadron, SRS, commanded by Blair Paddy Maine, the organization's preeminent figure after the capture of David Sterling and perhaps for some time before. 
The SRS was one arm of the regiment, the other being the Special Boat Squadron, commanded by George Jellicoe. The SRS's first action on the 10th of July 1943 saw 287 men landing at Capo Moro di Porco on the southeast coast of Sicily with the job of knocking out the enemy's artillery defences. With its deployment in Sicily, the SAS had to adapt. Its men were now used as shock troops, thrown at the enemy ahead of the arrival of the main invasion force. This commando role was quite unlike anything the SAS had been created to do. In truth, the organisation, viewed by many as a localised desert sabotage unit with no wider application, was fortunate to have survived the end of the North Africa campaign. Several days after the landing at Capo Moro di Porco, Tonkin and his men attacked the port of Augusta on Sicily's east coast. Jumping ashore from their landing craft as machine-gun bullets rattled the vessel's armoured side, they headed up a seemingly abandoned street, kicking indoors and periodically dropping down to shoot from low level. Reaching a junction, Tonkin opened fire on a man running down the connecting street, only to realise that the man was his own sergeant. Finally, the party reached a crossroads where they ran into heavy enemy fire. Suddenly, the firing stopped. Tonkin remembered that. We heard this shuffling and this peasant woman appeared. She was very old and she was just walking quietly down the middle of the road. It was only after she had completely disappeared that the firing started up again. The war had stopped so that one old lady could cross the road. This small but intensely human moment affected Tonkin deeply. At the start of October, during the SRS attack on Termoli, a town on Italy's Adriatic coast, Tonkin was taken prisoner by members of the German 1st Parachute Division. Shortly afterwards, while being transported through the countryside in the back of a truck, he prized back the canvas canopy, jumped and bolted for freedom. With the help of a succession of sympathetic Italian civilians, he reached Allied lines. A fortnight after his capture, he rejoined his SRS colleagues in Bari. In early 1944, the SAS achieved brigade status and prepared for operations in France. The unit's operational instructions for the upcoming invasion of Normandy indicated that members would parachute behind enemy lines to impede the movement of German forces by attacking roads, bridges and railway lines and by calling in RAF strikes. In an entirely new theatre, the SAS would again be performing the role for which it had been created. Tonkin was placed in charge of Operation Bullbasket, which involved dropping men near Poitiers in the Vienne Department of Western France. On arrival in France, he met the local SOE agent with whom he would be working closely. Together they agreed that they would allow the SAS's presence to become known locally, to attract the maximum information about enemy activities. Clearly this might have negative ramifications as well as positive, but it soon paid off. A railway worker arrived with news that petrol tankers belonging to the German army were standing in local railway sidings. Tonkin immediately sent a junior officer, dressed in clichéd French costume, to check that the report was genuine. It was, and the following evening twelve mosquito firebombers destroyed the tankers. Discovery and Disaster 
Subsequent events, however, led to the enemy discovering the location of the bull basket camp, and on the morning of the 3rd of July 1944, it came under attack by hundreds of troops of the 17th SS Panzergrenadier Division. Tonkin and several other men escaped. Most of the SAS men were, though, captured. Four days later, the prisoners were placed in trucks, driven to a quiet spot in the woods and murdered by their captors. John Tonkin finally returned to England on the 7th of August 1944, but his war was far from over. In March 1945, he crossed the Rhine as the SAS pushed into Germany in support of Allied parachute landings. Here, the unit carried out a combined commando and sabotage role, driving through enemy lines before shooting at them from the rear. The following month, he was part of the SAS party that liberated the concentration camp at Belsen. He remembered arriving at a camp that seemed from the outside to be merely a well-maintained military installation. He had absolutely no idea of the horrors that he was about to encounter. After the war, Tonkin worked for Shell Oil and moved to Australia in the 1950s where he became general manager of a uranium mine near Darwin. He died in 1995, having been awarded an Order of Australia Medal for his services to Aboriginal peoples. The SAS was disbanded at the end of the war, or so it seemed. However, an SAS war crimes investigation team under Major Eric Bill Barkworth remained in force to investigate the murders of SAS men in France, as did a series of SAS mobile teams sent to Greece to examine the roles of local people in the rescue of Allied servicemen. These teams were still in existence in 1947, when the name and concept was revived with the creation of 21st SAS Regiment. SAS troops have since served in numerous operations across the globe. Any report of the SAS's demise in 1945 was, perhaps, an exaggeration. Today's feature first appeared in the July 2023 issue of BBC History magazine and was written by Joshua Levine. Joshua is a historian and best-selling author. His latest book, SAS, The Illustrated History of the SAS, is out now, published by William Collins. Thanks for listening. And thank you to the Royal National Institute of Blind People for providing audio recordings of these articles.